As we're continuing in this uh, Dear Theophilus series, we're, we're working through the book of Luke and we want to take a look at what Dr. Luke is writing for his friend Theophilus to establish for him a confident faith that his friend might be able to be absolutely certain about the things that he had been taught. And as Luke writes this, he's writing the same uh, the same things to Theophilus that he intends for us, the church, to read, to comprehend, and to make our own. So as we are uh, working through this, we have been looking at what is it that Luke is trying to say. It's really tempting for us to just take each of these uh, individual pieces in the Gospels, break them down, and find some practical application for them. Uh, and that's great. Uh, I call that Facebook meme theology. We, we want to find a little piece that sounds good and then run with it. But what we need to do is to figure out what is it that the author intends for his reader, his recipient, to get from this. And then through the principles we find there, what is, that, what is it that God intends for all of us to be able to get from that? So I'm going to do today a little bit of what I just said was the wrong thing to do. We're going to be in the same text that we were in last week in Luke chapter 4. You're going to want a Bible. This is a Bible teaching church, so you're going to want to make sure you have a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, or you don't have it with you today, or you don't have a Bible that you can easily understand, just put your hand up and, and Michael will make sure that you get one. Uh, we've got plenty here, and if you, need to, uh, if you need a Bible of your own that you can write in and, and understand and make yours and just wear those pages out, then by all means, please take it. Uh, we've got plenty, and we want to make sure that everybody's got one. It doesn't do you any good to hear my opinion. The only thing that matters is to hear what God is saying to each of us. So as we're working through this, we'll be in Luke chapter 4 again. Same text as last week, uh, but last week we focused on the primary point that Luke was making. The primary point he was making in this particular part of the story is to establish that only a sinless Savior can save a hopeless sinner. That's going to be foundational to the gospel as we work through this. Luke wanted to make sure that, that we see, and Theophilus would see, at the beginning, who Jesus is. He's already in the first three chapters established that he is fully God, fully human, that he came to be the Messiah as prophesied in the Old Testament. And now he's building on this idea of Christ's humanity in facing temptation as our representative and overcoming sin. So that as our representative, one of us, Jesus could then bear our sin on the cross as the substitute, dying not as an example, not as a martyr, but as the sacrifice in our place to take our sin debt to appease the righteous wrath of God against sin. We can't do that for ourselves. No one who has sin can die in the place of anyone else who has sin because the price of my sin is death. Well, if I paid my own debt, I've got nothing left to pay for anyone else. Jesus, as the sinless Savior, had no sin of his own. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He took it so that we can take his righteousness. Isn't that mind-blowing? 
Somebody should say amen to this. I'm just telling you, this, is, this isn't my stuff. This is God's stuff. Jesus took all of your sin and mine. All the wretchedness, all the shame, all the failing, all the weakness, all of the, all of the dark places that we don't want anybody to know about. He took all of that on his own shoulders and he died on the cross for us. Man, I'm, I'm leading with the punchline here. This is, this is the biggest stuff there is. We get fixated on smaller things. How do we behave? How do we, how do we act right? How do we look the part? Man, that is so small and weak and pathetic compared to finding ourselves in him. That's the point Luke wants us to see throughout the entire gospel. Jesus did it all so that we in him can finally, finally in him be right with God. This week, we are going to go ahead and take a look at some of the practical aspects of this. We want to glean from this, how did Jesus overcome sin? Because there are ramifications in that for us. If we are in Christ and everything that's spiritually true of Christ is spiritually true of us, we are God's child in Christ. We are complete and whole and accepted in Christ. We see this over and over again in the scriptures. Ephesians makes it powerfully, powerfully clear. Then we want to know, how is it that we can resist temptation? How can we in our daily walk overcome this? So we're going to look at a number of passages. There are going to be so many more that I'm going to want to share with you, and I'm going to try so hard to resist the temptation so that we can go home before supper time. But we really want to be able to, to get this concept. And here's, here's the bottom line. So in the practical aspects of this, there's a core reality, this, this nugget of truth that draws everything together. It's the main idea on, uh, it's really in this particular text, it's the secondary main idea. The main idea is that Jesus is the sinless Savior, and he can save us because of that. But there's a secondary point here, and it's the main idea for today. This core reality is that contentment nullifies temptation. We're going to see that played out in Christ's life, and it's the same truth for us. It's actually always been the same truth. But apart from Christ, we can't find that contentment that will nullify the temptation. Contentment nullifies temptation. Say that with me. Contentment nullifies temptation. Now, maybe you can understand this a little better from my own weakness and failing, which I got a lot of examples of my own weakness and failing. But sometimes my wife sends me shopping. If you want to see a grown man act like a fool, send him shopping on an empty stomach. Because suddenly that $10 trip just became 100 bucks, and we start loading up the cart. Especially, you really want to see a grown man act like a fool? Let him shop in the cereal aisle for a minute. Right? I, I see some of you guys laughing because you know that's how it, that's how it goes. So if I go and I pick up some things, Shelly sends me to the store to, to get something that she needs for a recipe or whatever else. I go to get that one item, but man, I'm hungry. And maybe I should have had a Snickers, I don't know. As I get there, I'm, I'm, I'm not me when I'm hungry. I'm not making the best decisions when I'm hungry. So I get to the store, 
and you know, everything looks good. <laughs> How does that work out? So I'm distracted by all these things. I went for one item. I end up with 25 items. You know what I didn't get? The one item I went there for. Because my hunger provides an opportunity for all of the flashy advertising to get a hold of my mind. And it changes my perspective and my thinking and my feelings, which leads to a change in my actions. If I were to go shopping when I'm already full, much wiser choice. Because now I'm not craving those things the same way. I still love cinnamon life just as much on a full stomach as I do on an empty stomach. But I'm not as tempted to just grab it and lose focus because i got to have it now if I'm not hungry, if I'm already filled up. If I go shopping after Thanksgiving dinner, the result is a lot different than if I go shopping before Thanksgiving dinner. I don't have the same cravings. Contentment, fullness, nullifies temptation. It takes away the power of those distractions to pull at, at those gaps. Jesus was able to resist the devil because he was too filled with God's word to have room for the devil's lies. Whatever I fill up on makes makes it easier for me to say no to other options. This is why your mama used to say, don't eat those cookies now, you'll spoil your dinner, right? If I lead with the cookies, the Brussels sprouts are much less appealing. Mom would say, if you don't eat your vegetables, you don't get any dessert. I don't want the vegetables, but I do want the dessert. Hmm, that's an easy choice, I guess. I'll eat the vegetables because i got to get that dessert. But if I fill up on the dessert, <laughs> it's way easier to push away the vegetables. Whatever it is, the fuller I am, the less tempted I am to fill my empty spaces with something else. Good, bad, or indifferent, whatever I fill up on makes it easier for me to say no to other options. So one of the things we were, the overseers and I were, were meeting together yesterday, and we were uh, studying Bible study principles, uh, hermeneutical principles, how to interpret the Bible rightly according to the scriptures. And one of the things that we learned was about asking good questions. And one of the really good questions that we need to ask when we're looking at a text is, what is surprising about it? What about this jumps out that just seems unusual or doesn't seem to make sense on the surface? I need to dig a little deeper in it. Now, for me, maybe for you, one of the things that strikes me in this particular passage is that it's even here at all. Let's take a look at, at the passage itself. Luke 4. We're going to be looking at the first uh, 13 verses. <clears throat> if you're not sure where Luke is, it's about four-fifths of the way through your Bible. It's one of the first four books of the New Testament. It's actually number three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you're, if you're still ahead of that, you're in a bunch of names you probably don't recognize unless you're you know, in the Graham Noble family. You see Zephaniah and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you get to names you recognize, you're in the right spot. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has uh, just come out of his baptism where the Father opens up heaven and says, You're my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you so that everybody around can hear it. How cool would that be? 
Have you ever been praised by someone in public? Maybe it's a little bit awkward, but how awesome inside. To have your father, your dad, say to you, you know what? You're my child. I adore you, and I'm so pleased with who you are. This is before Jesus even begins his ministry. And the Holy Spirit makes himself visible in the appearance like a dove so that we see at the baptism of Christ the Father speaking, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the presence of the Son in the water all at the same time. And right after this amazing high point, we see in verse 1 of Luke 4 that he's about to head into a dark place, a difficult struggle. Let's read. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was, what's the word there? I wish I had a better word. That's what it says. But he's like deep soul hungry. Muscles beginning to deteriorate, struggling. No food. None. For 40 days. Yeah, he's hungry. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, man doesn't live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, well then, <laughs> just throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, as we look at this, Jesus is faced with temptation, not, you know, a little bit of temptation. This is not some novice demon, you know, toying around, learning the ropes. This isn't Jesus being tempted by the pressures of the world or the, the cravings of the flesh. That's all going to be in there. This is facing the master liar, accuser, and tempter in all of the universe face to face. Now, sometimes I, I just I feel foolish when I realize I'm probably never facing Satan himself. When we talk about Satan, we're speaking in a, in a collective, the forces of Satan, but Satan's not wasting time on me because I'm too easy. I probably get some rookie trying to figure out what's going on. Here, let me give you one of the easy ones. You get Zyger. He falls for the same stuff every time. Man, too often we're like that. Jesus is facing Satan himself. Satan is described in Scripture on, on par with Michael the archangel. You're talking about the dude. 
And Jesus doesn't falter. How? More to the point, I guess, to, at least to start with, the surprising part to me is, why? In, in just a, a little bit here, in a couple of weeks we'll get to it, we're going to see Jesus have a demon show up and he kicks the demon out. He does this fairly regularly as far as casting out demons goes. We see stories of this over and over. There is a demon tormenting. There's a demon lying. There's a demon even telling the truth. And Jesus is saying, get out of here. By my authority, you don't belong here. And those demons are gone. Satan's under that same authority. Jesus could have said to him, Satan, uh-uh, you're out of here. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't Jesus just say, be gone? Why does Jesus stay in the wilderness? Why does Jesus continue to fast after 40 days of hunger? You know, when we look at these things, he doesn't have to be there. He could flee. He could escape the temptation altogether. But sometimes the only way to get where the Spirit is leading us is through the wilderness. Sometimes the only way to learn what God needs us to learn is through turmoil. I'm talking about the deep soul struggle. Hardship. Not just bad things on the outside, but the bad things tearing at our insides. We often wish it, wish it away and, and pray that God will remove it. But it hasn't finished its work in us yet. God will allow these things, in this case, the Spirit leads Jesus there. So he's in this wilderness by God's design. Do you think God knew the devil was going to tempt him there? What do you think? Of course he did, because he's God. No surprises. Jesus could have left. He didn't. It had to finish its work. Sometimes we have to go through that, and there's no other way. We haven't become mature and complete yet. We're still lacking in something that only perseverance through the turmoil can develop in us. Even if it's only the perseverance itself. The ability to bear up under something. To stay even when everything in us is screaming to leave. James 1, the brother of Jesus, says, consider, consider it pure joy when you face these turmoils, these trials, tribulations of many kinds. Whatever it is, when it comes into your life and that junk is heavy on your heart, you need to flip your switch in your mind. Stop trying to run away from it. Stop trying to short-circuit the process and say, Lord, teach me what you want to teach me through this. That's what Jesus is doing. God is preparing him for the rest of his earthly ministry. Jesus doesn't have sin. He wasn't baptized for repentance like the rest of us. He was baptized to identify with the fruit of repentance. He wasn't tempted here because Jesus desires sin, but Satan is playing on natural real, legitimate needs through illegitimate means, trying to get him to take a shortcut to what God already has planned for him. He's already going to rule all the kingdoms. He's already approved by God and protected by God. He doesn't have to prove it. 
And he's going to be fed physically. God's already got that in mind. But more importantly, he's fed spiritually. Jesus is full. He doesn't need what the devil has to offer. And he's able to withstand. For us, sometimes just being able to stand and take it is what God's trying to teach us. To say, I will strengthen you. But through this turmoil, through this struggle, you're going to become mature and complete, lacking in nothing to be able to be everything that I've intended for you to be. Now, as we're um, looking at this, we need to understand that God never tempts anyone to, to sin. We see that same thing in James 1. In fact, let's go ahead and turn there. Stay, uh, keep Luke marked, but turn toward the back of your Bible, past the book of Hebrews. Then after James, they get kind of skinny. James comes right after Hebrews. To give you an example of how skinny they are, I just turned, turned past the passage three times trying to get there, and I know where it is. So James, as we just read in uh, verses 2 through 4, is talking about this, uh, the joy that comes with knowing that God is doing something through the struggle. But if you skip down a little farther to verse 13, you'll see James saying, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. God doesn't tempt us, but he does often call us into the wilderness situations of our own testing to refine us, to strengthen us, to build us. In the wilderness experiences, our flesh is often weakened, just as Christ's was by his 40 days of fasting, providing opportunity for us to choose illegitimate means to satisfy legitimate longings. This is the nature of temptation. It's an enticement to a shortcut. Look at Adam and Eve. God had given them everything that they could desire, and they bought the lie that there was something else. They bought the lie that God was holding back from them. They bought the lie that by tasting of this fruit, they could experience something greater. And the cost was more than they ever imagined. We see this over and over again. Ananias and Sapphira trying to find a shortcut to approval in the church by lying about how much they were giving so they could look better. And the Holy Spirit struck them dead. Glad he doesn't do that today. We see this here. Satan is trying to tempt Jesus by giving him shortcuts to what is already going to happen in his life. What Satan means for evil, though, God uses for good. We see that in Joseph's life in Genesis 50, 20. God does not waste Satan's attacks. When Satan tries to get us to fail, God uses that as a stepping stone for our success to make us who he's making us to be. Understand that temptation reveals our desires and our character. It reveals our discipleship 
and our strongholds, how we are tempted, what the devil tries to attack us with, and what we do when we are tempted reveals our maturity and the development of our intimacy with God. When our desires are divided, we limit our ability to fulfill the purpose God has for us or to serve Him in ministry. Jesus was able to overcome because His desires were not divided. His sole desire was to please the Father, as we talked about last week. For you and I, when we're tempted and when we struggle and when we fail, that's not a matter of salvation. It's a matter of discipleship. It's a matter of becoming mature and complete so that we are able to think rightly, if you will, to rightly reckon reality, so that we can see what is, what is real, as opposed to what just seems or appears to be real. When we're able to do that, and we're able to see reality rightly, and we're, and we're choosing to desire God, then we find ourselves filled with Him. And temptation is reduced. When there are empty places, the enemy will fill them. Jesus speaks of uh, casting out the strong man from his house, kicking demons out of a person, and leaving an empty space. This is, this is why transcendental meditation is such a dangerous evil. It's been promoted even in Christian circles at times. Just empty yourself. Oh, I'm going to empty my mind. You know what happens with an empty mind? The devil fills it. God says to fill ourselves with Him, to be self-controlled and alert, to be right thinking as we renew our minds over and over with His Word. He transforms us from within. If I'm just going to empty myself, man, the devil's happy. You just swept out the house, man. I'm going to set up shop. When there are empty places, the enemy will fill them. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, we see that we are transformed by this renewing of our mind. You ever hate it, hate it when the shoe gets untied in the middle of the sermon, right? <clears throat> Worst things have happened. 20 years from now, no one will know. It, this renewing of our mind is not about resisting our desires. It's not about... Seeing things that are good. I, I used to think this when I was younger. If I really want it, it must be wrong. I had a friend that had a shirt that said, if it tastes good, spit it out. Right? That's not what this is about. We've had that picture of the Christian life for far too long. That it's about denying ourselves. And it is denying that dark part of ourselves that is actually not being true to ourselves, who we are in Christ. Denying the flesh, yes, but what we need to do is not get rid of our desires or, you know, strike our desires down. That's what religion does. It binds us back. But the call of Christ and the picture of God, even in the Old Testament, is to transform our desires. It's not about that at all. Piper, uh, John Piper talks about the idea that this is about changing our desires so that we are doing what we want and what we want becomes what we ought. So that no longer are we seeing, here's what I want to do and here's what I know I should do. But we begin to slide that over. So what I want to do is what I should do. The deepest desires of our heart are put in us by God and the deepest desires of our heart are for God. All the rest is small 
frail and pathetic. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, has a, a great quote, which I, here, I knew I had it written down here. I was going to have to do it from memory, and I'll, I know I'll mess it up if I do. But it's from his book, The Weight of Glory. I've used it before. Many of you have seen it or, or heard it. Lewis says it this way, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, as we've often been taught, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus wasn't tempted by what Satan was offering because what he was offering was less than what Jesus already had. You and I can resist temptation in the same way when we realize who we are in Christ, what that means, the fact that the devil cannot take what God has given to you. Now, don't hear me talk, talking like a prosperity preacher that, you know, God wants you to drive a fancy car and be healthy and wealthy and wise. That's not, that's not it at all. He wants you to be wise. That will make you healthy. And his idea of what wealthy is is entirely different than our flesh might say. God doesn't want you to be happy in this world. He wants you to be right and fulfilled in him. That's the entire purpose of our existence. So when we choose what we really deeply want, then we find this infinite joy that he's offered. You can start writing these things down here. We'll start moving a little more quickly now that we've established some concepts. Jesus overcomes temptation using tools that are available to everyone in Christ. Jesus overcomes temptation using tools that are available to everyone who is in Christ. Now, if contentment nullifies temptation, here's the problem. What if we don't have a reason to be content? To borrow from the Christian hedonist's credo, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. But if I don't know him, then I can't be satisfied in him. And as Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, for those of you from a liturgical background, as Augustine said, our souls are restless until we find our rest in him. We're made for him. God has set eternity in our hearts, Solomon wrote. But we can't begin to fathom everything that God's doing from beginning to end. There's a deep longing inside each one of us that can only be filled by him. And we're messing around like Lewis said, Man, we're making mud pies in a slum. We think we're going to be fulfilled by our career or by yet another relationship so that that person can make me whole and complete, can be my true north. We think that we can forget about all this stuff with a substance that's going to take away our pain. We think we can chase after all the pleasures of this world and, and you know, have a, a, just a fun, good life. Man, sometimes we get confused. We think that the only sin, the only bad thing that we can do is to you know, fill our minds with drugs and alcohol and all these different things that, that people you know, recognize as you know, 
social sins, perhaps. No, man, when, when we're doing those things that are good and fun and joyful, education, sports, being good at your job, when we're trying to find our fulfillment in that, it is just as sinful. It's just more subtle. The person who's lying in skid row, completely strung out, everything has fallen apart in their life, Mark this, we're going to see this throughout this gospel. They are closer to God than the person sitting up in the office thinking they've got everything together. Not because the, the rich person can't come to Christ, but because the person who thinks they've got it all together never will. I don't need anything. Until we become spiritually aware of our spiritual bankruptcy, we're never going to turn to it. And until we turn to him, we can't have the contentment that we are meant to have in him only. Jesus overcomes temptation using tools that are available to everyone who is in Christ. The key is being in Christ. Jesus is filled with three things. We're going to see these in the text. Three things that he's filled with. The love of the Father, the power of the Spirit, and the truth of the Word. The love of the Father, the power of the Spirit, the truth of the Word. Look at, at how Jesus responds. You see the Scripture, that's the obvious thing. We see that the, the Scripture is jumping out here. But he's doing this because of the fact that he has spent time, 40 days, he's out here in the wilderness, not eating. He's fasting from what satisfies the flesh, satisfies the body, to feast on what satisfies the soul. He's spending time, difficult time, with God. And Satan is tempting him through it. He's full of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit leads him from the Jordan out into the wilderness. And because of the Spirit with him, and because of his knowledge of the love of the Father, Jesus is not tempted by Satan's offer of getting rid of his hunger. The, the devil said to him in verse 3, If you're the Son of God... Tell the stone to become bread. Jesus, you're hungry. Is hunger a legitimate need? Is it? Of course it is. Everybody gets hungry. And what do we need when we get hungry? I don't know if I believe you. Say it again. I know you people like food better than this, or you wouldn't be coming to real life. We like food here, don't we? What do we need when we're hungry? Nice. Thanks, Colleen. And Jesus is saying, look, it's not that my body's not hungry, but I don't care about that because my soul is so full. The Lord is sustaining me, and I am not worried about a little thing like a grumbling tummy. I am a little bit more connected with God than Winnie the Pooh. I am going to be able to move forward because God is sustaining me. He recognizes this, so he clings to the truth truth of the word. You know what's interesting? Jesus is the word. How cool is that? John says he is, is the word. He was with God in the beginning and he is himself God. Jesus is the word of life. So when he quotes scripture he's quoting himself. Jesus says, listen I don't need to play with you. I don't need the bread. I've got the word of God. Satan says I'm going to show you these kingdoms here, right? Take a look at it. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Power, wealth, prestige, 
He said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor, for it's been given to me. Jesus knows that Satan is the prince of this world. He's been given for a time, on a leash, a degree of authority, and he runs this place. For as long as God allows it. And to the extent that God allows it. But Jesus isn't worried about this. He quotes the word to him in, in uh, verse 8. It's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knows who he is. And he knows what he owns. He knows all of this. You're a temporary prince. You're a squatter here. And you have some squatter's rights for a while. Because my daddy said so. But in the end, guess who gets it all? Jesus does. I read to the end of the book. In the book of Revelation, of Revelation, the new heavens, the new earth, the great kingdom, the fullness, the perfection of everything that we're longing for in this world, that all of creation is longing for, is run by, is owned by the Lamb who sits on the throne. Guess who rules with him? The saints. Those who belong to Christ govern everything with him. Jesus knows what he owns. So when Satan says, hey, all you got to do is worship me, and you can have what you're going to have anyway if you don't worship me, he's not really offering him anything he's not going to have. He's offering him a shortcut. Skip the pain. Skip the cross. Go right to the crown. That's not God's plan. There is no crown without the cross. Lastly, Satan takes him to the top of the temple, and he appeals to his craving for approval. Now all of us have this to one extent or another. We have a need to be loved. But Jesus has spent time fellowshipping with the Father, putting the word deep in his heart. And because of this deep connection with the Father, Jesus is able to rest. I don't have to prove my daddy's love for me. I already know. Jesus could stand on this high place, and I don't know if you're like me or not. I've got a little bit of a thing with heights. So if I'm standing on the high place, my heart is pounding, right? Uh, yeah, I know. I spent some years as a roofer, and it was a struggle for a bit. Don't tell George Fry. So as, as I am standing on this high place on top of the temple, I'm filled with fear. I'm overcome with this, right? Why wouldn't Jesus be? Because he knows the scripture better than the devil does. And the devil knows it better than I do. He spent a lot more time studying it. Jesus is the word, right? He wrote it. So when Satan's quoting scriptures at Jesus, how do you think that's going to go? I wrote the book, devil. I already know what my daddy's going to do. I can't fail. In Christ, as believers... You can't fail. You were created in him for the good works that he put in place already in advance for you to do. Ephesians 2.10. But recognize it is our destiny to be finished in him. Philippians 1.6. He who started this work in you is faithful and will complete it under the day of Christ. It's the destiny of every believer to be perfectly conformed to the likeness of Christ. You cannot fail. Jesus is filled with the love of the Father, the power of the Spirit, the truth of the Word, 
But the devil tries to do here the same thing he tried to do in the Garden of Eden with Eve, the same thing he tries to do with us. He does what his nature tells him to do. He lies. The devil is a liar. You recognize that? Is that true? Somebody say with me, the devil is a liar. The devil is a liar. Jesus knows that. He knows who he is. He knows what he owns. He knows the protection and love of the Father. And he knows that the devil is a liar. Stop listening to the lies. The devil makes the good appear rotten. And the rotten appear good. He's trying to tell Jesus, you're not fulfilled. You're not protected. You're not loved. You don't have enough. You're not important enough. And he appeals to the, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes and the mind and the pride of life. And as he tugs at these things with Jesus, he's looking for a crack. Some place to wiggle his fingers into. Or if you're thinking of maybe rock climbing, he's looking for a crack to use as a foothold so he can scale the wall. But Jesus doesn't have one. For you and I, it's the same thing. The devil will try to make those mud pies seem so important that we miss out on the holiday by the sea. He will try to make what God is giving you seem small and what the world is offering seem large. Don't buy the lie. Don't believe the liar. Jesus responds to temptation with Scripture for one key reason. Jesus responds to temptation with Scripture because truth destroys falsehood. Jesus responds to temptation with Scripture because truth destroys falsehood. It's not, as you might see in a movie, when some demonic entity or a vampire or whatever shows up and people bring out a cross, I'm going to beat the devil. Come on. Get over yourself. That's foolishness. I see people get so hung up on, i got to pray in Jesus' name. i gotta, I got to say in Jesus' name. Yes, pray in Jesus' name. But if you're in Christ, all your prayers are in His name. If you're praying according to His will and desire, then you're already in His name. And if you're not, saying it isn't going to change anything. So let's stop trying to use God's word as some sort of a magic incantation to make the devil run away. Jesus doesn't quote scripture at Satan to change Satan. Jesus is quoting scripture because it's true. He's reminding his flesh, oh, heck no, I'm not staying here. There's a greater reality. This stuff here that is seen is temporary, but the unseen is eternal. Paul says in Colossians 2.10, or uh, 3.2, sorry, I got my verses uh, switched around there. Set your minds on things above. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? He continues to say, because you are seated with Christ. You are with Him. And when He appears in all of His glory, you're going to be with Him. This is where we belong. We need to get our minds right. When we change our thinking, that's when we begin to see things. 
I feel unfulfilled, but that doesn't mean I am. Sometimes, I don't know if you know this or not, sometimes you can feel hungry, you want to go get a snack, but what you really, what you really are is thirsty, and your body wants water. And you're filling it up with something else, but your body is saying, I need water. This is a problem that we have. We get mixed signals. My feelings are not very good thermostats. They're pretty good thermometers. They might tell me what the temperature is. They might tell me if something's wrong. But they're not very good at controlling the temperature. That's what thoughts are for. I control my thoughts. I don't control what thoughts come to my door. You're going to have worry, fear, anger, anxiety, uh, you know, lust all come to your door, and they're going to come knocking. You get to decide who's going to come in and sit on your couch. If you let those ungodly thoughts come in and stay, then you will struggle and you will suffer. When a cultist comes to your door, turn them away. When a salesperson comes to your door, if you don't want to buy something, here's a crazy tip. Don't let them in. Because once you let them in, you're going to hear the spiel, right? And by the time they're done, you might have changed your mind. If you don't want it, shut the door. Jesus responds to temptation with Scripture because truth destroys falsehood. When my thoughts align with truth, then my feelings will align with reality. My feelings very often don't match what is real, but they always match what I tell myself is real, what I think is real. When I think these things, my feelings will always follow that. When I change the way I think and begin to line up my thoughts with the truth by renewing my mind with the scriptures, that's when my feelings will begin to change. They're going to match up with reality when my mind matches up with truth. Jesus overcomes the scripture because he put scripture in his heart long before this moment. He didn't wait till the moment of temptation. Oh, what, what can I think of for a verse? Let me Google it. Let me come up with something real quick. Long before this, he spent 30 years, because he's 30 years old, just milking everything he can from the scriptures. To, to milk every moment of intimacy with God that he can. Why is he fasting in the desert? So that he's not listening to the flesh, he's listening to the spirit. He's getting in tune with the Father. Put scripture in his heart long before this moment. He spends deliberate, difficult time in fasting here to carve out intimate time with the Father. He starves the flesh to feed the soul. Understand, this isn't about Jesus quoting scripture. Because a lot of people could quote scripture. David Koresh could quote scripture. Every cultist can quote scripture. It's about understanding scripture. It's about owning it. Not just the word of God, but my word, of my God. I'm going to own this. I'm going to take it into myself. The letter and the spirit of the law both. Knowing comes from a disciplined effort. Understanding comes from intimacy with the Father's heart. Now, why does this matter? Why does any of this matter? Because Jesus has not only overcome sin himself, but he has given us the ability to resist the devil's lies in him. Contentment nullifies temptation. If I'm in Christ, this is really important for us to recognize. That's why I've made it your memory verse for today. If I'm in Christ, Paul says in Colossians 2.10, in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Now, that 
being brought to fullness is translated complete in many of the translations. It used to be in the NIV. They changed the rendering to this. Because that word that's translated fullness means to be filled up or literally to be filled full. When I'm full in Christ, then there's no room for the devil to tempt me by saying, look, you're unfulfilled, you're hungry. The fuller I am, the less tempted I am. When I begin to realize the, the fullness that I have because I'm a child of God in Christ, it has an impact on how I walk. So what difference does it make in my daily walk? Three points you want to grab here. When I'm full, I'm not easily tempted. When I'm full, I'm not easily tempted. When I have eaten a full meal, when I have eaten a full meal, really? <laughs> Jesse, deal with that, please. All right, sit on it or something. So anyway, if I could silence it, I would. If I've eaten a full meal, I might still have dessert, but I'm going to have dessert in the right proportions. If I'm already full, that which is pleasurable is still pleasurable, but now it can be pleasurable in the right context. Do you realize that there is no good thing in this life that God doesn't want you to have? All of the pleasures that the world is trying to sell you, God already wants to give you. But in the right context, in Him, for His glory, we get all hung up on, on you know, the, the changing sexual rules in our society. The rules don't change. It's just what society tells you. Marriage and sexuality and family has always been given by God from the beginning to be an illustration of his relationship to his people. So if we don't do it his way, we're missing the illustration. It still has a temporary pleasure. Sure, that's great, fine, whatever. But that's like trading in a Cadillac for a Yugo. Three of you know what a Yugo is. So <clears throat> some other little car. Yugo is in my mind. Why would we trade treasure for trash when he wants us to give give him our trash so he can give us his treasure when i'm full i'm not easily tempted secondly when i know what i own i don't pay for it twice when i know what i own i don't pay for it twice now we have in our spice cabinet in our kitchen my wife's not in the room so hopefully i get away with it in our spice cabinet, in our kitchen, we have like 27 things of cloves. Because every time there's a recipe, it's like, I don't know if I have cloves. So it gets more cloves. I've got so many cloves in, the, in this thing. Now, I love cloves, but let's get real. Why does that happen? Because I don't know what I have in my cabinet. So I buy it again. If I don't know what I have in Christ, I'm going to keep trying to get something to fill that gap. It might already be mine but I'm gonna keep chasing after it because I don't realize it. I don't know what I have. But it's worse than that. The devil's not just tempting us to buy something we already have and get another one. Yes, that. It's worse. It's like trying to get you to pay for the car that you already paid for and are already driving. You already have it, it's in your driveway, you've already paid for it, 
you own it outright. He's trying to convince you to pay over again for the same thing. If I know what I own, that doesn't even make sense. There's not anybody here that could have somebody come up and say, hey, you see that car you've got that you've been driving that, that you own? I know your name's on the title and all of it. I want to sell that to you. And if you will give, I'll give you a discounted price. I, I will give you that car for $1,000. I, I know that you know, it's a $60,000 car. Uh, not my car. <laughs> but I know you have a $60,000 car. I will sell you that car for $1,000. Which of us would do that? Nobody's going to do that. But we do it every day with the temptations of the devil. Hey, you know what? You need love. You already have all the love you could ever need in Christ. You need love. Let me show you some ways that you can get it. Let me show you some ways to, to manipulate, to get approval, to get people to think well of you. Foolishness. If I know what I own, I don't pay for it twice. That's exactly why Jesus wasn't tempted by all these kingdoms. <laughs> You're offering me what's already mine. Now, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. But I can see past this temptation, at least when I'm standing up here talking to you. Because so often I forget what is already mine in Christ. And I pay for the same stuff I already own. It doesn't make any sense, but I keep doing it because I haven't filled up on the love of the Father, the power of the Spirit, and the truth of the Word. Lastly, when I know I'm loved and protected, I have no need to prove it. When I know that I'm loved and protected, I have no need to prove it. Now, here's the deal. You're going to have tempting thoughts, things that are going to come into your mind that are going to try to get you uh, to, you know, to fear and to be you know, worried that God's not going to take care of you or that you're not going to be able to make ends meet and God's not going to provide for your needs. It's a lie. It, I, there isn't a better, easier way for me to say that. It's a lie. If you are in Christ, then the Father loves you exactly as much as He loves His own Son. Because in Christ, you are his son or daughter. Apart from Christ, you're not in a relationship with him. And you have reason to fear. He loves you. But you're outside of the family and you've rejected his protection. But in Christ, you have it all. There's no need to prove it. There's no need for me to try to get control of my situation. To try to stop bad things from happening. Because no bad thing can happen to me apart from the will of God. And if he was willing to sacrifice Christ on my behalf, what part of that says he's going to hold back something less? Why would I think if he would put on flesh and, and die on the cross for me, that he would give up something so much less? It takes God nothing to take care of your problems. That's like a flick of his pinky, right? He gave up everything on the cross. You think he's going to stop now? I gave you my son. I myself took on your sin so that I could still be just in my holy standard, but also the justifier. But you know, now you've gotten on my nerves. You've gone too far. You've gone too far. I know that I made you the way you are, and so, you know, I just, I regret it. I'm tired of it. I'm done. 
That's not even logical, but that's what the devil tries to get us to believe. When I know that I'm loved and protected, I have no need to prove it. I want to close with one passage of Scripture that you probably are already extremely familiar with. But I want to read it to you in light of what we were just talking about today. Most of us have at least heard the 23rd Psalm. If you grew up in church, you probably memorized it when you were a kid. You've probably heard it at a dozen at least funerals. David is writing this from a shepherd's perspective, and he's thinking not as the shepherd, but as the sheep. And as he's doing this, he is describing a contentment and fullness of a sheep delighting in the shepherd, being confident not in himself, but no longer caring about himself because he knows that the shepherd cares for him. As we read this, keep that in mind. Hear it in that light. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. In other words, I will lack no good thing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Our righteousness brings glory to God as he leads us in his way. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Do you think for a moment that sheep don't get scared in the valley of death? Of course they do. Of course they do. But knowing that the shepherd is there means they have no reason to fear. I'll fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. While my enemies watch, you call me to feast. You are putting me in a position of celebration and safety, and there's not a doggone thing the enemy can do about it. You anoint my head with oil, a symbol that I've been chosen and accepted by you. My cup overflows. Surely, Goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Contentment nullifies temptation. If I choose to delight in the Lord and fill up on the love of the Father, the power of the Spirit, and the truth of the Word, then the devil's lies lose all their appeal to my mind and heart. All of these tools, all of this fullness, is ours in Christ. When we fix our minds on these things, we're too full to be tempted. When we don't, temptation gains a foothold in our lives. But rest assured, there is not one thing the devil can do to you. The only power he has is the power of a big mouth. He can lie. You get to decide if you will believe the lie or believe the truth. If you are in Christ, nothing Nothing can take you from his hand. Nothing can change the fact that you're a child of God and you belong to him. Praise God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we sing and, and close this service out today, 
remind us that we have been brought to fullness in Christ. That he is the head over every power and authority. That, that there is no part of us that is empty or lacking. But Lord, we're so bad at remembering that. Sometimes we think we're hungry when we're not. Remind us. Remind us that you are valuable beyond anything else. That with you is infinite joy, complete satisfaction. Teach us more and more every day to stop looking for it elsewhere. Father, teach us to, to fill up on you. Teach us, Father, through whatever turmoil is necessary. can't take what you've given us. We can't change who we are. We're loved and protected. And you've proven it so many times. There's no reason for us to test you. No reason for us to doubt you. Just to rest. Help us be better at resting, Lord. Use whatever means necessary to break us until we surrender to you fully.